and um, the announcement about the open gym, um, along with the basketball, apparently there will be some other exercises taking place in the form of some clogging lessons. Now, don't count on me being there for that, but if you're interested in that, uh, or have ever wondered what on earth is that, then by all means, show up and you'll find out. Uh, Christy Nelson, you can talk with her uh, after the service if you have any questions about it, but that'll be going on just kind of as an alternate activity. If you're not into basketball, then there you go. Um, anyway, we're, we're going to conclude this morning and this evening the series that we've been in for the last month and a half or so on the book of Joshua. And over the last several weeks, what we have looked at are, are the secrets, at least as the Bible reveals them, the secrets to ultimate success. And from the very beginning of this series, what we, what we saw in the very first few verses, the first nine verses of the first chapter of Joshua, is the fact that God's definition of success is a lot different than the definition of success that's typically out there, the one that we usually operate by. And, and throughout this whole thing, it's not been meant to say, well, you're totally wrong and you've got the wrong idea, but it's awful easy, is it not, to just sort of go along with the flow of what else, whatever else is going on around you. I mean, it's difficult to back up and say, wait a minute, I, I'm not sure that the definition of success, what's always being pursued, is exactly the right way to go. Think about our world. Think about just trying to get more, climb the ladder, so to speak accumulate more, buy, buy bigger stuff, have more things. I mean, that's typically what we equate with, with true success. Now, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with when God blesses you with a little bit more. You, you shouldn't pursue poverty for the sake of thinking that you're somehow more spiritual if you are in poverty. That's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible does teach that in our pursuit of what we determine as success, if we don't have it line up with what God wants, and we're going to wind up as Jesus said in the, Old, in the New Testament, rather, of gaining the whole world and forfeiting our soul. And so we, we've, got, we've got a choice to make. And we looked at from the very beginning of this series the fact that uh, in order to understand what success is, we've got to operate with a different definition of it. And Jesus uh, reified this in the New Testament, what God said here in the Old Testament, Joshua, that ultimate success is really faithfulness and obedience to God's Word. And that's it. That is the bottom line of it. Now, there are other things that we do in life. You, you simply don't sit around all the time and just see, you know, see how much of the Bible you can ingest. I mean, none of us uh, have that luxury. Excuse me about that. None of us have that luxury to do that. But at the same time, uh, in, in our pursuit of what we're going for in life, our pursuit of success has to be founded and based solely on that my goal is to be faithful and obedient to God's Word no matter what. Whatever line of work I am, whatever God blesses me with, whatever circumstances I face, positive or negative, we want to make sure that our definition of success is faithfulness and obedience to God's Word. Through this whole series as well, we've looked at the fact that we really don't know what's coming up. I mean, think about it. Two weeks ago, we met on a Sunday morning, knowing that there was a forecast for a little bit of inclement weather. Things probably weren't going to be ideal, but none of us, none of us had any idea myself included, I was probably the worst, had any idea that on Tuesday of that week, we would get slammed with an ice storm like we've never seen. Nobody had any idea that was coming up. Even the people that forecast the weather, God bless them, they guess. You know, that's just the way it is. That's the way weather forecasts. They're taking the best shot they know. 
None of them had really any idea of how bad it was going to be. Now, they warned and they said, be prepared and all that stuff, but they really didn't know either. And so we've seen how even in little things that we don't know what's coming up in a weather forecast, we have no clue. And in your life on the the grand scale, you really don't know what's going to happen, good, bad, or otherwise. And so the, the, the premise that we've also operated on is that even though we don't know what's coming up, we still want to be successful no matter what. Nobody in their right mind would say, you know, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, but whatever it is, I just want to fail miserably. I just want to be a complete failure my entire life. I hope I'm the biggest loser that the world has ever seen. No, I mean, no, nobody says that. You know, now sometimes we operate that way, but nobody really says that. And we, that's not our goal. Our goal is everything with success. Yes, is that, is that me? Do we have any idea? All right, well, I'll just keep talking. How about that? We'll figure it out. Every once in a while, it'll pop and it'll wake you back up. All right? As you get lulled to sleep by the melodious sounds of my voice, right? Anyway, um, what was I talking about? I don't know. Uh, but we have no idea what's coming. There we go. We have no idea what's coming up. All these things are recorded, too. I just I always think sometimes if, if somebody gets on our website and they haven't been here you know, Sunday morning and, and they don't really know the context of, of, of you know, what's going on and all that, I just picture them listening and, and they just heard all that, too. So anyway, um, but... But we don't know what's coming up, but we want to handle it with success. Nobody wants to be a failure. And so if we're going to handle the situations that we have yet to see with success, then we've got to operate according to God's Word. So what we've done is sort of walk through the book of Joshua, how God said, if you'll follow me, then you'll have success wherever you go. Now, that doesn't... doesn't, There we go. Guys, how about if I just use this one? How about that? All right, let's switch. We'll go to the pulpit mic, and there we go. I won't get to move around. That's going to be tough. It'll be interesting. Anyway, we, we, we have seen how uh, that, that God said, if you'll follow me, then you'll have success. Doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect. I mean, in your life, you can attest to that. Certainly, you've had times where you think, you know, I'm following God, and God, what's the deal? I mean, this, this, isn't, this isn't supposed to happen. I mean, God, I've, I've been obedient. I mean, I've been doing the best that I can, and this happens. So there's no guarantee that things will go perfectly smooth. But God said he'll be with you and he'll give you success and he'll help you out. And so so we've looked at the fact that that a redefinition of success is where we need to start. And that strength and courage, the second message we looked at in, in Joshua chapter 1, strength and courage will be needed along the way. That even though we can operate with a great redefinition of success, we've got to have strength and courage to see it happen. Then, in the third message, we looked at the fact that there's this beautiful choreography that exists in our relationship with God when we do our part and we trust Him to do His. Then we looked at how we need to be ready for God to show up. The Israelites were going to see some incredible things, but they had to be ready. They were to make themselves holy and consecrate themselves, the Bible says, and that's to be clean before God. Then we looked at the fact how they, after they crossed the, the Jordan River, they set up some memorial stones to celebrate and to remember what God was doing so that they could always look back and have a visual reminder of what God did. Uh, then we looked at the fact that, that right before they were to take the city of Jericho, they had three unique experiences with God that reminded them of who was really in control. And ultimately, it was not going to be Joshua, though this book takes his name, though he was the leader of the Israelite people, God was who was in control. He was the one who would take them into the promised land. Then we looked at the battle of Jericho itself, and the walls came tumbling down, and how they were supposed to walk around the city six days, one time around the city. On the seventh day, walk around seven times, scream real loud, blow some trumpets, crazy things will happen, the walls will fall down, and God will give you the city. 
It doesn't make any sense. Not a military strategy that you'd want to employ today. But the unconventional plan of God sometimes is a little bit different than what we would think, but it always leads to rest. It always leads to where God wants us to go, and if we'll follow him, we'll see it. And then immediately following that, in in Joshua chapter 7, we saw how it never pays to obey God halfway. It it never pays to sort of do what he wants you to do and have a foot kind of in the water of somewhere else. never pays to do that. Then last Sunday morning, we looked at, at what happens when you win. Uh, now what? Now we've had success. Now what do we do? Because a lot of times we learn better from failure than we do success. And so we looked at that last Sunday morning. Then last Sunday evening, we, we set a record and covered about 13 chapters in one night. And uh, we were here for seven hours, and it was great. And I was left by myself after about the first 30 minutes. But I finished them. I just want you to know, all of you that left last Sunday night. Anyway, we uh, we covered the the. The, the time period of, of Joshua distributing the land, and particularly in chapter 13, when God showed up to Joshua and said, Look, you, you are old and advancing in years, the Bible said, but you're not done. And Joshua was about 85 years old at this time, give or take a couple of years, and he was never done. Joshua never stopped listening to God, never stopped doing what God wanted him to do. And, and the challenge last Sunday evening was no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter how old you may be, never stop being active in your relationship with God. Uh, this morning we'll uh, round out most of chapter 24 and we'll conclude tonight with a look at Joshua just sort of as a whole, the man himself, a portrait of success. So let's, let's think about this. There, there is something in this particular series for everyone. There has been something that maybe you've taken away based upon what we've seen in God's word that is applied to you. And so you know what, that's for me. And the great thing about God's Word is that it was written for all of us. It's not written for just the people who seem so mature as Christians that they must understand everything. It's not written just for young people, just for middle-aged people, just for old people. It's written for all of us. And so because of that, you may wonder, well, I look around this room and I'm not sure what I have in common with that person. I'm not sure what I have in common with that person. They, their hair color is a little different than mine and they didn't pick it. You know, they... They, they don't quite have all their hair anymore. Or they still have all their hair. I, what is the deal? They, they look a little bit younger, a little bit older than me. Well, I don't know what I have in common. The great thing is this, that the Word of God is what unites us together. And that as believers in Jesus Christ, what we have in common is the Word of God, which transcends all age groups, all backgrounds, all races, anything at all. And so this morning, I want us to approach it with the fact that, you know what, we, we may have a variety of ages, and to be honest with you, I think that's a biblical church, to have a variety of ages all spread around. But what unites us is the Word of God. It's what we have in common. And so let's look at what unites us this morning. If you have your Bible open and can turn with me, I'd like for you to turn to the final chapter in Joshua, and that's chapter 24. Uh, there'll be a few verses uh, as we go along here that you'll see... Uh, uh, a little bit later on up on the screen, and, and those are the ones that we'll focus on in particular. They'll be up when, when we get to those. But, but I want us to kind of understand what's going on just in general uh, in chapter 24. Uh, and uh, in verses 1 through 4, and again, we're not going to read each one of these in particular, but in, in verses 1 through 4, Joshua is, is, is beginning what, his farewell speech. He, he's gathered all the people together. The land has been divided up among them. He's, he's done what God told him to do. He knows 
that he's about to die, and he's, he's giving them his farewell speech, sort of like the coach that gets everybody together. And here's the pregame speech. Here's, here's the last thing I'm going to tell you before, before things happen. You go on the field and you take care of business. This is Joshua's farewell speech, his pep talk uh, for the Israelites. He gathered them together, and the Bible says they were gathered together before God. And this was a, a, a place, obviously, uh, some people would argue what was there that made it before God, whatever. God was meeting with them. There was something significant about this place. And it's obviously for them then a place of accountability. It's kind of like us coming on Sunday morning. I mean, it's, it's where we know we're going to be face-to-face with how have I been living the, the last week. And the, and the Israelites are face-to-face with this. They're before God, uh, a place of accountability. And Joshua then begins to review Israel's history. He starts walking through all the things that had happened, how God blessed Abraham, even though he had no children. In, in his old age, God blessed him and, and gave him Isaac. And then Isaac was given Jacob. And, and then Jacob and his family wound up in Egypt. And so verse 4 concludes with, here's the, here's the fact the Israelites were now in slavery in Egypt. Verse 5 picks up with, Moses and Aaron were sent to Egypt. Maybe if you don't know anything about Israel's history, there's a little history lesson for you. The Israelites were in slavery for a few hundred years. Moses and Aaron are sent uh, to go and deliver them. Egypt uh, was plagued uh, by ten different things that God sent to try to get the Pharaoh's attention. Uh, all except for the last one, Pharaoh ignored. And finally, at the last one, uh, when God took uh, all of the firstborn males in Egypt and had them killed, finally, Pharaoh uh, gave his attention to the Lord and told the Israelites, Get out of here. I don't want any more of what your God has to throw down at us. Get out. And so Moses and Aaron... Uh, were, were able to lead the Israelite people out. They encounter the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea in front of them, and they travel on. Joshua describing all this in verses 5 through 13. Then they spend a long time in the wilderness, 40 years they spend in the wilderness. Then after that time period was up, Joshua describes how they then crossed the Jordan. God gave them Jericho and a lot of other cities, uh, and he then uh, describes how God fought for them. How it, and God says this, he says, It was not by your sword or your bow that these things happened. It was, it was God fighting for you. And then uh, look, at, look at verse 13. I believe verse 13 is on the screen. The, the, this history of Israel is sort of wrapped up with God saying this, I gave you a land you did not labor for, and cities you did not build, though you live in them. You were eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And this is how God closes that particular passage of Scripture. It's interesting uh, that God is, is, in a sense, making this point. You'll see this on the back of your bulletin and on the screen. God is making this point that we don't deserve anything that we currently enjoy. He was pointing out to the Israelites, look, you don't deserve any of the things that you currently enjoy. I am giving you, I gave you a land you didn't labor for. You didn't have to do anything. You, you, didn't, you didn't grow all the stuff that's in there. I gave you cities you didn't build. You took over these cities. You never even put the walls up. You, you never built all the buildings in them. Though you live in them, I gave you those cities. You were eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And he was making the point to them, and I believe to us, that we don't deserve anything we currently enjoy. Now, we could wrap up the service right there and all walk away feeling like really bad because, well, yeah, you're right, I don't deserve anything. Oh, I'm scum. I'm, I'm useless. Golly, if you knew what I did, you'd really say I don't deserve it. That's not the point. The point is that because God was on their side, He gave them victory. They, they couldn't take any credit for all the great things that God had done. In fact, God, in, in every verse from verse 3 to verse 9, when God is talking, every verse from, excuse me, 3 to 13, except for verse 9, God says something about what He did. 
Verse 3, but I took your father Abraham, led him throughout the land. I gave him Isaac. Verse 4, and and to Isaac I gave Jacob. I gave the hill country. Verse 5, then I sent Moses. I plagued Egypt. And afterward, I brought you out. Verse 6, when I brought your fathers out of Egypt and reached the Red Sea. And it says in verse 7, your own eyes saw what I did to Egypt. Verse 8, later I brought you to the land of the Amorites. In verse 10, but I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, I delivered you from his hand. Verse 11, I handed them over to you, talking about all of the different people. Verse 12, I sent the hornet or his presence ahead of of them. In verse 13, I gave you a land that you didn't labor for. It's interesting that God just sort of repeats all of the things, these eyes, I did this, I did that specifically telling the Israelites, it wasn't you that brought yourself to where you are. All the great things that you're about to inherit and enjoy, it's not because you're so great. It's because God is so incredible. It's because He did all those things. And I think about my life, and I look, take it from, a, from a, even just a physical standpoint. I, I have different scars. I don't know about you all. Some of you probably do. I have a scar that's very, very small, right there in the center of my upper lip. When I was about three years old, I was going down a slide, and I kind of flipped over and wound up banging my face on the concrete there below the slide, got some stitches, and later on, I remember coming home one time, my parents weren't there. I came home from school, and little did I know I was supposed to go to a neighbor's home, but I freaked out. You ever done that? I just freaked out. I started banging on the window, and the, and the glass busted, and I cut my hand. And then later on, when I was in high school, I made a real bonehead mistake and wound up having to have surgery because of it. And I've got a scar on one of my fingers. My dad had a small bout with skin cancer, and so I've had several things biopsy. I have scars from those things. I have, I have healed scars all over my body that remind me of things that, that, that you know, healed up over time. I also, uh, on the flip side of that, I have a collection. It's buried somewhere probably in our attic, and I have a collection of trophies from when I was a kid. Maybe you still have your old trophies. You know, my dad still has a few of his. T-ball trophies, baseball trophies, basketball, different things that I played. I got these trophies. And, and in a very real sense, you know, those things that my scars serve to remind me of things that happened, you know, that may be funny now or, or just remind me of, wow, that was a tough time. Or, or, and those trophies serve to remind me of, of some of the really, you know, nice things I got to be a part of in our, in our lives. Some of you have some, some really deep scars in your life but they've been healed. You still see them. You still see the fact that, you know what, I remember when that happened, but you know God has healed those scars. And and then we also look around, we have some trophies in our lives. We have some good things. We say, you know what, God did that. I mean, I I know that times have not always been great, but I mean, I I could set up this trophy and say, you know what, that reminds me of what God did. The very truth is this, that we don't deserve anything we currently enjoy, and we don't deserve our healed scars. What we deserve is to have our scars left wide open, those wounds never to be healed. And yet God in His goodness and His mercy heals those scars in our life. We don't deserve any of the trophies, any of the good things we experience. Maybe the job that you once had, maybe the money that you enjoyed now, maybe the home that you live in, maybe the family that you have, whatever it may be, we don't deserve any of those trophies in our lives. And God is making that point. And as a result, in, in, in verse 14, it starts off with this, Therefore... Because you don't deserve any of the things you currently enjoy, Joshua says, verse 14, Therefore, 
Look at the verse. Fear the Lord. It'll be on the screen. Fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. So he, he sets it all up with this. Here's what God says. Look, I have done all these things for you. I have taken you through your tough times in the wilderness, healed up your scars. You, those tough emotional times you face, God says, you know what? I, I have the power to heal those. Yeah, you may still feel the effects from time to time because of the things that have happened, but you know what? That's been healed. And God says, look at all the great things that I've done for you as well. Look at all the battles that I've fought and won for you, all the trophies that you've collected along the way, anything good in your life. Because all of that is a result of God, Joshua says, therefore, fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity and truth. I want us to look at just for a moment, and we'll move on, what it, what it means when we fear the Lord and then when we worship Him in sincerity and truth. Here's what it's talking about. When we fear the Lord, that is to see Him for who He really is, and what He's capable of. See Him for who He really is and what He's capable of. You'll see that should pop up on the screen behind me to fill, in, fill that in. See Him for who He really is and what He's capable of. Now we think of the term fear the Lord and we think, well, maybe I should just cower all the time in His presence. Maybe I should walk around and never really approach God because He's so incredibly powerful. There is a certain amount of healthy respect and legitimate fear that we ought to have because when we stand in the presence of a holy God, we stand there completely unworthy. We stand there deserving for God to destroy us because of our sin. The Bible makes that very clear. And yet I believe that when we take a full look at what the fear of God means, that we, we see Him for who He really is. He is God. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He is just. He is loving. He is righteous. He is a great Father. And we see Him for what He's capable of not just capable of destroying us. That's the view we take a lot of times of God and focus only on that. But He's also capable of doing for us what He did for the Israelites. Doing for us what we could not possibly accomplish on our own. The Israelites, in and of themselves, had no real chance to take over this land that God gave them. And yet God was capable of giving them victory in the face of impossible circumstances. For some of us today, we just need to look at our lives and say, you know what, all the things that I currently enjoy, I, I realize I don't deserve any of those things. And so I'm going to, as a response, I'm going to see God for who He really is. I'm going to understand He's loving and He's righteous and He's holy. And I'm going to realize what He's capable of. All those things that He's brought me through, it was God who did that. That's the God that I serve. I'm going to see Him for who He really is. But Joshua doesn't stop there. He says, worship Him in sincerity and truth. That means we're, we're supposed to respond accordingly. When we see God for who He really is, and we see what He's capable of, our response then needs to be according to that. You'll see it on the screen. And Joshua says that, that to fear the Lord and then to worship Him in sincerity and truth. See Him for who He really is. Respond accordingly. It's interesting as you... As you play this out in, in the, the subsequent verses here, they have this back-and-forth conversation. Joshua uh, challenging the people, who are you going to serve? And the people say, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua said, well, hold on, it's going to get pretty tough. And they said, no, no, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua said, wait a minute, you don't understand. God expects a lot out of you. He expects you to be holy. He expects you to follow Him and not serve any of the other gods. And they said, that's fine. We're going to serve the Lord. And then they wrap things up with making a covenant. And then Joshua sends them out to go enjoy their inheritance. And so we're to respond accordingly. It's interesting that Joshua sort of lays out the proper response. So what the, this proper response, when we respond accordingly, first of all, Joshua challenges them in verses 19 to 20 to count the cost. 
Count the cost of responding to God. I, I, I want to say this to you, and I don't mean to, um, to make it sound more, more difficult than it is. That's not the thing. But if living the Christian life on a moment-by-moment basis were easy, then there probably would be a lot more people in your life that you'd see doing it. Now, that doesn't, that's just a general observation. If it were easy, everybody would do it. I mean, if it were something that said, you know, big deal, no problem, I can do that, everybody would do it. You know, because what we, what we think of a lot of times in Christianity is, well, I'll show up for church. Uh, yeah, okay, I won't do that as long as the preacher's watching. You know, I won't say that or this. And we think of all the things, well, if I just check off the rules and if I just don't do these certain things. Joshua said, wait a minute. It's a little bit more than that. It's not just do these things right and don't do these things that are wrong. Joshua said, count the cost. In fact, he said, he told them in, in sort of a, an exaggerated form, he said in verse 19, you won't be able to worship the Lord. He said, he's a holy God. You won't be able to worship. He's a jealous God. He won't remove your transgressions and your sins. He says, if you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, He'll turn against you and completely destroy you. Now, now we can take that at face value and say, oh, my goodness, okay, well, I can't follow the Lord. I guess it's over. Joshua's just making the point. You know what? There, there's a little bit more to this than just making a verbal commitment to God. Now, obviously, for the Israelites, that's where it was going to start. They had to be verbally committed to God. But he said, wait a minute, it goes a whole lot further than that. Count the cost. Stand back and look at what it's going to take in your life to get to where God wants you. Does that mean that you're going to perform so God loves you and all that stuff? That's not even the point. But Joshua says, you make this commitment. It requires more than just lip service. There's a little bit more to it. You can't worship God halfway. Even Jesus said that you can't serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other or serve the one and despise the other. You can't have it both ways. Joshua says, count the cost. You want to serve God? All right. Let's look at what it's going to require. It's going to require you leaving behind everything that is the pattern of this world. Everything. Does that mean you give up all your possessions? No, Jesus only told one guy to do all that. So don't read in anything that's not there to what I'm saying today. But what Joshua has challenged him to say, look, all the stuff that you've sort of tried to do along with worshiping God, pursuing these different things, trying to make sure that you're in competition with everybody else. He said, no, you're going to either serve God wholeheartedly or you're not going to serve Him at all because that's what He expects of you. So count the cost. And then He said in verse 15, He said, make a choice. Make a choice. It's interesting. This is probably a, a, a verse that you've heard before. You'll see it on the screen behind me. It says, but if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord... Choose for yourselves today the one you will worship. The gods of your fathers, the, your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. As for me and my family, some versions say, as for me and my house, we will worship or we will serve the Lord. Maybe you've heard that before and you know, where was that from? There you go. Learn something today. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. It's in the context of Joshua laying out for them. Look, you know what? You've got a choice to make. God has given you lots of things you don't deserve. He's brought you to a place, given you just life in your body that you don't even deserve. So, so, so count the cost, respond to Him accordingly, and then make a choice. What's it going to be? Is it going to be God, or is it going to be the pattern of the world around you, the, the things that your fathers went after, your ancestors, what they pursued, or the things that everybody else sorts, sort of worships? What's it going to be? And He challenges them to make a choice. And then the part that I'd like us to focus on before we close is this. Not only were they to count the cost and then make a choice as to who they were going to serve, 
But what that choice then required was this, that they would live every moment according to God's standard. Every moment according to God's standard. In verse 23, it says this, after Joshua's had this back and forth conversation with them, what's it going to be? We're going to serve the Lord. And wait a minute, it's going to get tough. Hold on a second. Are you sure that's what you want to commit to? Yes, we're absolutely sure. And Joshua says, all right, fine. Verse 23, then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and offer your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. It is a moment by moment every single day living according to God's standard that Joshua calls these people to. Not just, hey, it's great, we had a pep rally, we're all excited, we made a great commitment. All right, you ever seen that happen? You ever seen it happen where somebody gets all excited about something and we we pump them all up and they go out and they have no idea then what to do? Joshua says, no, no, you're not going to be like that. You're not going to be people who just respond and say, oh, yeah, we're, we're in the presence of God, it says, or we're in church today, so hey, that sounds great, let's do that. Joshua says, no, no. If, if you really want to, to follow God, you, you've counted the cost. You say, you know what, I, I know what it takes to follow God. I, I've made a choice, and I'm going to worship. I'm going to leave everything else behind and worship God. He says, fine. And you are to get rid of the gods, it says, of, of, that are among you, and offer your hearts to the Lord. He says, it's a moment-by-moment moment living according to God's standard. Think about this. If the response that Joshua is calling them to is to count the cost and then to make a choice to say, I'm going to worship God and then realize what that commitment means and that's moment by moment living according to God's standard, how then do you respond like that? I mean, that's truth. And we can just say, well, okay, well, that's great. You know, good job. You told us the truth today. Absolutely wonderful. But we still wouldn't have any idea what to go and do. Uh, the system of this world is, is still against us. We're still going to walk out of here today. And, and most of you uh, don't live here at the church. And so you're probably not going to be in church all week long to be held accountable to all this stuff. So what do you do? I mean, how do you go about responding in that way? And, and you won't see any of this on your bulletin. Uh, so, so just kind of focus here for just a second. If you've fallen asleep, now's the time to wake up. If somebody's next to you, elbow them, whatever. Almost done. You don't want them to be left here by themselves. Anyway, if you're going to respond the way that Joshua called the Israelites to respond, to the fact that we don't deserve anything that God has given us, to the fact that God then must be worshipped in sincerity and truth, and He must be honored as our God, if you're going to do that, it's, it's simple, but, it, but it's fairly complex. Does that, does that make sense? Here it is. You need to make sure that on that moment-by-moment -moment basis of following God's standard, that you systematically, that means that you go about it with some thought and you go about it with some effort and some devotion. You systematically remove yourself from the influence of this world. You systematically remove yourself from the influence of this world. Now, what you might want to read into that, which is not what I'm saying, is that you should systematically remove yourself from the world. That would mean that you would have to live completely by yourself and never eat. And then you would starve to death and you'd be useless. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the influence of the world. I'm not talking about the fact that you shouldn't now go to your job or go to your school or be around anybody who is of the world. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, Jesus would say the exact opposite is true. 
But what I am talking about, if you are to follow God's standard on a moment-by-moment basis, you have to remove yourself from the influence of the world. You have to look at the system of the world and say, you know what, I'm going a different direction. And here are some things that I would say, if you can do some of these things practically, this is not a conclusive list, this is just some things. One thing would be, pause before you speak. The world would say, you know what, you need to get the last word in. I mean, if somebody says something to you, I don't care who it is, you know what, you tell them. And isn't that the way it works? I mean, think about it, it's your job or the job you used to have or whatever, and your family. I mean, we don't pause very often before we speak. But you know, the Bible says we get ourselves in trouble when we talk a little bit too quickly. We, we, we get ourselves in trouble. So maybe one of the things you could do to say, you know what, I'm not going to get caught up in that. I'm just going to, I'm going to pause. I'm just, yeah. Take a second. So that I don't respond the way that the rest of the world responds. Another thing may be to wait on a purchase. Now, this is going to get tough. Wait on a purchase. You realize that, that Proverbs says that the, the person who borrows is the slave to the lender? But how many things do we get before we can afford them? Well, we've all been, I've been guilty of that. I can't stand here and say, oh, you guys are just awful. I can't say that. I don't really know. I'm just talking from my own experience. But what if, what if we just said, you know what, I'm going to live according to God's standard, and I'm going to do money His way, which means I'm going to wait just a little bit before I make this purchase. And the greater the amount of the purchase, the longer I'm going to wait. I'm going to really make sure that this is where God wants me to go. For some of us, that's our way to remove ourselves from the influence of this world. Another would be to forgive. There are very few forgiving people in this world. You know why? Because we feel like when we forgive, that we're condoning what that other person did. We're saying, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. What do we say when somebody says, hey, I'm sorry? We say, it's okay. It's not okay. What you did was wrong. It's wrong. It's not okay. But forgiveness doesn't mean you say, well, eh, it's okay. It's no big deal. Forgiveness means, you know what? I'm not going to hold it against you. You don't owe me anymore. And the Bible says and makes it clear in Colossians that as God has forgiven you, so you ought to forgive other people. Think about what God did for you. Forgive. Another thing would be to do things that you can never get credit for. Do things you can never get credit for. You know, we like to do things for people, but, you know, we, we kind of like in some way to make sure they understand, I did that for you. You know, we, we like for people to give us some recognition. One of the ways you can break the mold and follow God is to do something you'll never get credit for. And that may mean make an anonymous gift to somebody. That may mean do something for somebody they'll never see. I don't know what it means in your life. But, but do things you'll never get credit for. Uh, one of those may be to volunteer. I mentioned this, this Thursday. We're going to East Elementary. That may be a way you just volunteer. You say, you know what? I'm going to break the mold of selfishness and always looking out for me. I'm just going to do something for somebody else. And this Thursday may not be your opportunity. I don't know. But you may be able to volunteer for something somewhere. I, I think to practice humility. I think of the people who, uh, who would, would be looked at and say, you know what? They deserve to be able to do this. They deserve to be able to do I think of the I think of the business manager, the boss, somebody who deserves to be able to take a, a you know, a, a, maybe a stance of power and so on. You realize Jesus, on, on the night that he shared with the disciples the Last Supper, the Bible says in John that he had all power given to him, which means that he knew what was going to happen and could have done anything he wanted to do to stop it. And yet it says that even though he knew that Peter would deny him three times, one of his closest friends, that Judas would betray him for some, some pieces of silver. 
and that all the other disciples would run away. You know what Jesus did? He said, the Bible says he took a towel, put it around his waist, and he washed their feet. In the moment where he was the most powerful person in the room and deserved to take control, deserved to exercise his power, deserved to get what was coming to him because he was God in human flesh, he served those people. Maybe for some of us, we need to take the words of Joshua and simply become the spiritual leaders of our home. Instead of relying on someone else or leaving it up to someone, he says, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Systematically remove yourself from the influence of the world. That, those things are some ways as far as how you can go about it. And I want to close with this. Why? You can say, well, that's great, but why? Why should I do those things? Why should I respond that way? The very last thing on your bulletin. Get this. Israel's purpose. Israel's purpose was to obey God. Then receive His blessings. And then draw other nations to Him. And we're no different than that. Let me explain this for just a second. We'll close. Israel was selected by God after a period of time... Through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have this back and forth between God's creation rising up in evil and sin against him and God really doing something with it and almost seemingly turning a different direction. And he decides that, that after the flood, he's going to establish through Noah what he wanted to do. And then in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, all the people thought they were going to be just as great as God and build this huge tower and go up and worship the gods on top of it and really elevate themselves. And God says, fine, now you don't speak the same language anymore and you're going to live all over the world. And so God then, in chapter 12, raises up Abraham to be his representative on earth and through Abraham establishes the nation of Israel for this purpose. For the purpose of having them obey him so that in that they would receive his blessing. And that the people and the nations living around them would look and say, what is up with their God? When they respond to their God, they seem to have peace like we don't have. When they respond to their God, He seems to be doing something in their life that, that our gods don't do in our lives. And so the purpose of the nation of Israel was to be this light shining so that people would see how great God is. And so that they would be drawn to Israel. And then Israel would share with them, here's who our God is, here's what He has done. And you can experience Him just like that too. God's purpose for Israel was always evangelism. It was always showing other people the way to get to God. And our purpose is no different. Our lives are meant to be such that we would obey God and receive from Him the blessings that sometimes we can't even that we can't put into words, that we can't physically hold in our hands, but receive from Him a life such that people would look and say, tell me something about how you made it through that because that's impossible. Tell me something about how God has worked in your life because there's something different in your life. And our purpose is just that. Our purpose is so that people would see in us the greatness of God through our obedience to Him and as a result be drawn to Him. And so why should we respond like that? Because that's the exact reason we were created. There is no greater purpose than to draw people through the way that you live, be used by God to draw people to Him.
There is no greater purpose than that. Israel's purpose was to make God look so incredibly great that other people would say, what's up? How can I get in on what your God is doing? Our purpose is the exact same. It's easy to consider all this when we're here at church. It was easy for the Israelites in the presence of God, the beginning of that chapter says, to get fired up. It, it's easy when we're held accountable here because you got nowhere else to go. And I got the microphone. You know what I mean? It's easy. It's easy then. But it's not so easy when you're not here at church. You know, it's easy around the campfire at a, at a, at a church camp or somewhere like that. You ever been there? Well, it's easy there. Everybody gets all excited and emotional. Here we go. We're going to conquer the world for Jesus Christ. And you couldn't get them back to church later on with a stick of dynamite and a pizza party. I mean, it just ain't going to happen. Nothing's going to impress them at that point. But what happened? Because it's easy around the campfire. I mean, it's easy. It's easy in the huddle during a pregame speech to get fired up. All right, coach, we're ready. We're going to go take them. We're going to win. It's easy at the pep rally in the school for everybody to say, yeah, I'll be there. Hey, this is exciting. But I tell you what, it gets a lot more difficult when you're not around the campfire. When you're not in the huddle, when you're not at church, because the game has to be played outside of here. In verse 28 of chapter 24, it says this, Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. They did not stay right where they were. He sent them away, each to their own inheritance. They didn't get to stay there. They had to go and live it out in the land where God had given them. They, they were still among people who didn't live it out. Opposition was awaiting them as they left. They had to go where their lives actually happened. They had to get involved with the business of their communities. They had to get involved with the mundane things of life. And Joshua said in verse 15, what's it going to be? We're about to send you out. What's it going to be? Who are you going to serve? Which system will you systematically remove yourself from? Will it be the system of God or will it be the system of the world? Will you see God for who He really is? And then will you respond accordingly? It is a moment-by-moment living out of God's standard, and it cannot be done only here at church. It cannot be done only when we are naturally held accountable because, well, I showed up. It has to be done and really can only be done when you leave here. When you go onto the field of play after the pep speech, consider this your pregame speech. It's interesting that Joshua gave this sort of pregame speech after they had conquered all these different lands. They'd won all kinds of battles. Why didn't he give them this pregame speech before? Because why? Because God had fought all those battles for them. They didn't need a pep talk. They just need to go do what God said to do. Now was their time to step it up just a little bit. And for them to say, you know what? Because God has done all this, we're going to worship him. We're going to follow him. And I believe the challenge for, for you and for me is the same thing today. And we're leaving to go play the game. We're leaving to go on to the field. And what's it going to be? Will we, when we walk away from here, begin to systematically remove ourselves from the influence 
of the world. So that while we are in the world, and we ought to be there, while we are there at our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, wherever we go, while we are there, that we fulfill our purpose of obeying God and seeing Him work in our lives in such a way so that God looks incredibly great through us and other people are affected by that. What's it going to be? I believe that God has incredible plans for, for you as an individual and for our church if, if we'll do that. Let's close in prayer and then we'll have a song. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word and for Your challenge I thank you for the challenge you've given me just in my own life. And God, as we remove ourselves from the influence of the world, may we not fall prey to removing ourselves from the world completely. But God, in the world, may we be an influence that you would be pleased with. And God, we thank you for all of the healed scars, all the trophies in our lives that we realize we don't deserve. But God, we thank you for them. God, may we respond accordingly, fearing the Lord and worshiping you in sincerity and truth, seeing you for who you really are and what you're capable of, and then counting the cost, making a choice, and living each moment according to your standard. God, thank you that that is entirely possible, that there is hope to do that. And God, that you partner with us to give us the strength to make all that happen. I pray for the people that we'll encounter this week, that they would see in us an incredible obedience to you and see you working in our lives and see you look really great so that they might be able to come to know you. God, make us your tools of evangelism to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand? We'll close.